Former World Bank Vice President Jim Adams has chaired DFAT's Independent Evaluation Committee for the last seven years. Now he is stepping down and joined us at ANU to present his reflections on the performance of the Australian Aid Program. Listen on to hear him discuss how to build a robust performance culture based on accountability, transparency, learning and appropriate risk management. Hi everyone, good morning. We're ready to make a start. Um, sorry for the slight delay, we were just um, dealing with some technical issues on our live streaming. Um, my name is Ashley Bedard and I'm the manager of the Development Policy Centre here at ANU and it's my pleasure to welcome you all here this morning. It's, it's great to see such a full room, it's fantastic. <laughs> I'd like to um, acknowledge and celebrate the Ngunnawal people on whose traditional lands we meet this morning and to pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. As we begin, I just wanted to flag that we've had some changes to the schedule for today um, due to the sensitivities of caretaker provisions, as I'm sure many of you in the room are familiar with. Um, we've had to uh, leave hearing from our DFAT ODE speakers this morning on some of their recent work. So we will be finishing earlier at around 10.30am but please do stay and enjoy some morning tea with us. However, today's main program continues and we're honoured to welcome Jim Adams back to the centre this morning. Jim has served as chair of DFAT's Independent Evaluation Committee for the past seven years. And as he prepares to step down from this role, he will deliver his reflections on the performance of the Australian Aid Program and what is needed to build a robust and accountable performance culture for Australian aid. During Jim's time chairing IDC, he's been a regular feature at the Joint ODE and Development Policy Centre Evaluation Forums that we've held once or twice a year, depending on the year. Um, Jim also delivered the 2013 Mitchell Oration at the Centre on the topic of lessons for the Pacific from Africa, and he also spoke in Port Moresby at our PND Update Conference. He has had a long and impressive international career with the World Bank, including serving as Vice President for East Asia and the Pacific, and he has drawn on this experience and, and his work to strengthen the evaluative, evaluative outputs of the aid program with fellow members of the IEC as its inaugural chair. So today we look forward to hearing Jim share his perspectives after seven years of examining the Australian aid program. Jim will speak for about 40 minutes and then we'll open up the floor to questions. So please join me in welcoming Jim Adams. Thank you. Yes, I think so. Um, it is very nice to be back. Um, as has been mentioned, I've, I've been invited a couple of times to ANU and I've very much enjoyed the interaction. I'm a big fan of the center. I think it's providing an important role both in discussing broadly the aid effort in Australia, but more importantly, I think dealing with a whole range of policy issues from substantive analytic work to the work that's done with countries in the region. So I think you have a real asset in the center. Um, I was asked in 2012, shortly after I retired from the bank, to head IEC by the then uh, head of OSAID, Peter Baxter. And I was a little taken aback by it. I'm not an evaluator. I did have the opportunity twice in my bank career to represent the bank management in responding to bank evaluations. And so that certainly gave me some idea of what evaluation was. But fortunately, um, right at the beginning, I was told by Peter that uh, he would support me with very good evaluation capacity. And that was done. 
um, when Wendy Jarvie and Patricia Rogers joined as the first group that was the Independent Evaluation Commission Committee. And we've met uh, over the seven years, initially four times a year, but when the program downsized, we meet three times a year. We review pretty much everything that ODE writes. Uh, we also comment on a number of the quality issues, and I'll come back to that as, as, uh, as particularly DFAT has worked on improving the focus on quality in the aid program. Um, those, the meetings are, are fairly short, uh, but do allow us to, to, to review all documents, do allow us to comment, and I think we take response, we've taken responsibility as a group to ensure both the general quality of the documents, but we also focused in the early days on two problems that had affected the earlier evaluation work within OSAID. There was a concern, there was a lot of quality work done, and you can go to the website and see the work done before us, although I will say it highlights from, the website begins in 2012, but the earlier documents are there. So there was certainly good evaluation work done, but there were problems in, in how much was delivered, and there were problems of the transparency in terms of what was published. And so those were two themes that really have marked pretty much our entire tenure as the committee in terms of attention to and focus on. I want to make about seven points on evaluation, but when I read the introduction for today, it suggests I was going to talk a little bit more broadly about development. So I've added two points um, on Australian aid and some of my, my views on that, and a specific, couple of specific points on the Pacific, which I think is a particularly important area of work for the region. If I look at Asia, certainly Asia more broadly has problems and challenges, but across most of the region, you're seeing pretty solid economic progress and pretty solid growth. And so I do think you have some special problems in the Pacific, which I'd like to take the opportunity uh, to comment on. My first set of comments is about the, you know, the function of evaluation. And uh, the evaluators always talk about accountability and learning as the two key themes. Uh, my experience is uh, that there's a lot more focus on accountability than learning. And I think that's a mistake. It's a theme I, I come to very often. Uh, first of all, because accountability is easy. It's very easy to write a report criticizing people. It's much more challenging to draw the lessons from that work and to make suggestions about how people can use the analysis to actually improve performance. And since I see development as a, you know, an optimistic business of trying to improve lives, it seems to me that the focus on, on learning should be more intensive and more effective. And so we've tried pretty much consistently through our work to ensure that the learning function has been, has been honored and reflected in the work we've done. Um, ODE does do regular reports on the review of whether the recommendations that are made in OED report are actually followed by the management and staff of, of uh, DFAT, and I think that's an important activity. Um, they do a variety of pieces on best practices and shorter pieces on lessons learned. Um, and we tried to do an annual report on learning, and the author of that report is in the room. I have to say, uh, I was disappointed because it has not, that did not get the traction that I had hoped it would. And I still think there's a message about the importance of emphasizing learning. And I'll, I'll be in DFAT this afternoon, and certainly a point there I'm going to make is that uh, one of the challenges, I think, with all the staff of DFAT is to engage them more in the learning function 
and picking up the lessons from, from the work that's done by OBD. Uh, second issue I often focus on is the issue of independence and evaluation. This is one of these uh, internal evaluation issues and a preoccupation of many people talking about evaluation. And I have a somewhat counterintuitive view on this. Um, I don't think independence has near as much uh, an impact on quality as most of the people in, in, in evaluation argue. Um, I think much ado is made of this, and I think a perfect example of the sort of confusion, or what I call the confusion, is represented in the recent piece Richard Moore, a friend and colleague of mine, had in his piece on DFAT, where he updated, made some comments on where DFAT was five years after the change. In that note, I'll quote his recommendations. The head of ODE should be an external candidate on a non-renewable contract to maximize independence. You know, if you ask me what the head of OED should be, it should focus much more on quality of the person. You should get the best person available. And you should focus not to worry about whether you're going to have a tenured person or non-tenured person. If the person's good, they should be kept. If the person's not so good, you should probably move on and find another person. So, you know, Richard and that reflected a very a, a, a very important theme of evaluation, which I think is simply wrong. And indeed, um, I, I think the message for, for, for DFAT and any evaluation group looking for an evaluation group should be to find the best person available. And more important, I think, a message of not taking people from the organization is a terrible message about the quality of people you want to do evaluation. I mean, you want to grow people and, and you know, the. The ODE has been pretty effective at bringing new people in and growing people on evaluation. And you want to assure the staff that, you know, if someone really does rise to the level, that they'll have access to the top position. So I simply want to say that that remains my view. And I think it's important that it's reflected very much in my experience in the bank. The best people I saw, and as I said, I did deal with them over a period, were people that from within the bank who, who rose to the top position. So independence of evaluation is a topic people like to talk about, but I don't think it's a very sensible topic. Um, I want to tell a couple of things about what I've seen happen during my time in OD, because I think it's important. And the first one I want to talk about is really what I think has become a best practice, um, which was a little bit, it's a bit of a hidden gem because it wasn't we weren't aware of it, quite frankly, when we began. Um, OSAID and DFAT have always had a process of doing operational evaluations within the working staff of DFAT. And so they're not the big strategic evaluations that OD tends to concentrate on. And about four years ago, in the discussions when, when this was discovered, a decision was made to actually do an evaluation of that work. And I have to say, there was some nervousness on the part of the committee about doing this because no one knew exactly what to expect. There had not been any comprehensive review. And indeed, when the review was done, it was quite interesting because what one found was actually you know, an important resource of good evaluation. Certainly, I would argue that consistency is not the same with strategic evaluations and not the same oversight, but there was a lot of good evaluation work being done by operational staff. And I think this is a message that you know, really is important to give, that DFAT both has a capacity to do ODE evaluations, but also allows and supports staff in doing 
operational valuations at the working level. So to me, it's a, it's a strong message about the commitment, both of resources and time, of the management of DFAT, and I think it should be complemented. Uh, there's been a recent review done, again, um, more recently. Those reviews have resulted in suggestions to consolidate the, the work, and I think that's important because I think that'll lead to, lead to some improvements because very often OD is asked to help support that work, and it also has limited resources. The other thing that happened was in the first report, the discovery was that not many of these reports were available to the public. And we pushed transparency very hard within IEC, and as a result of that, you're now seeing a record of actually getting these reports not just completed, but they're also all being made available to the public. And I think that's an important additional asset for the discussion of evaluation in the region. Uh, my fourth point is, is, a, is a point that I, I think I didn't realize as much when we began with, but actually ODE has played a key role in working with um, particularly the, the management division, the aid management division, on focusing on and ensuring about the quality of oversight of DFED operations. So this wasn't in the original terms of reference, but it's interesting, we've had a very good We've had a very good relationship uh, with the management division. And when issues have arisen about quality, there's been good discussion between IEC and that group. So it's been an open and constructive relationship. And let me just give you two specific examples because I think they reflect the sort of work that is being done to reinforce and assure quality. The first one is, uh, is you know, AQC quality. These are the reviews of individual investments over $3 million. And so there's a regular process of, of ODE reviewing the quality of those reports and ensuring that they meet appropriate standards. Uh, when there are weaknesses seen, there's a discussion with the working level staff. And that work, I think, has provided important signals to management about the quality of staff, of, of quality of the actual projects. Um, Two years ago, two or three years ago, when some very modest changes were made in the instructions on AQCs, all of a sudden there was a dramatic improvement in project quality by at least the ratings. And so this was something both the Aid Management Division and ODE worked on. And within a year, there was an ability to go back, review what the instructions were, and get, we felt, and, and the Aid Management Division felt more, more accurate and more consistent records on performance. And so you had there one example of where I think the work actually made sure that the focus on quality remained high. Second example is a very new one. Um, there's a new acronym, FAQCs. These are the final AQCs. And historically, the instruction um, in, in originally in OSAID and then in DFAT was the staff had a requirement once during the life of a project to do an independent review. And, and this was one instance where I'm afraid my biases from the World Bank um, came to the fore. And fortunately, Wendy, who was also involved in this, but has also worked in the World Bank, um, had the same bias, that this didn't make a lot of sense. That what would be much more useful for management would be a review at the end of, an independent review at the end of the project cycle so that at the end of the project cycle, the manager would have more consistent messages, both about where investments uh, were successful, where they were not, and where there were problems either at the country level or the sector level. And I'm pleased to say that's now been accepted. 
And so FAQCs are now a part of the quality review function, and I'm hopeful that they'll contribute again to ensuring that there's accurate views of where portfolios stand, where there are problems, where, where there are successes as well. Uh, my next point is just to summarize a little bit uh, my view that a lot of excellent work has been done, and I'm talking now not about IEC work, but about the, the work that ODE has done in both meeting the standards of delivery that were expected, ensuring that with strategic reviews that they're all made available, as well as other important pieces of publication that they do. And so I want to emphasize that you know, the, the role in IEC in this is actually fairly modest because all the real work is done by ODE, and it's been a pleasure to be associated with that work. Um, just a couple of things which, which I remain very proud of. Um, a lot of work has been done over the last couple of years on disability, and this has been a particularly hard area because there's not a lot of work in the, in the, in the outside world. And I think Australia has emerged as a leader in this area, and I think the evaluation both has underlined that point, but has also begin a, began a struggle of trying to figure out how disability work can be better reflected in the aid projects that are done. So this is a work in progress, but I think it's been an important activity. Uh, as some people know, I'm an Africanist. I spent most of my bank career working on Africa, and I, I'm, I think... OD should be very proud of the work that was done on the Horn of African Humanitarian Crisis in 2011. Um, and it's important not just because it was a good piece of evaluation, but I think it sent an important message about the capacity within DFAT in terms of its global role. Um, DFAT's not a big actor in the African community, and it wasn't even a big actor in terms of amounts in dealing with that crisis and that food crisis. But some junior DFID staff that were on site made the decision to get involved in the crisis in an active way and to work on aid coordination. And in fact, from the analysis, and I think it's accurate, played a much more effective role in improving coordination than many of the longer time big actors in the food business in East Africa. And so I think you had there was a clear discovery of a capacity that Australia does have to both work effectively with other donors, but also to, to play above its weight in terms of its role on an important humanitarian issue. So I think there was a clear message there. Um, very proud of the first work that went completely through the process um, on, a, on Australian volunteers. Uh, we did have a discussion. It was the first uh, document that was discussed. Um, there were some criticisms and some sensitivities, but in the end, everybody felt better because it was given an award as an excellent piece of evaluation in the annual review. But I mean, I think there are two messages. Steve still doesn't agree. I think there are two messages. One, this issue of actually having these meetings where there are comments and inputs, I think, is very important. Um, evaluation doesn't get this much attention more generally, and actually, I'll come back to that. The second point I was going to make on documentation is that ODE doesn't only do strategic evaluations. They have a full range of other work that they do, both to monitor the work that's going on. They do regularly updates on evaluation policy to make sure people know what's going on. Um, policy notes come out. And, and there, this review of past recommendations, I think, as I mentioned before, is an important aspect 
of the follow-up and the learning. And finally, the spot check work, which is done on AQCs, has been, I think, an important part of the overall quality function. Um, I'll, I'll comment a little bit on the ANU issue, because I think that is another best practice. I mean, I'm a little bit surprised at the crowd today. Um, there aren't many places that evaluation gets this level of attention. So it's certainly pleasing to me to see that. Um, generally, attention falls very much on the sideline. And I think the ANU uh, DFAT interaction to put together these on a regular basis has been an important way of both sharing lessons from experience, but also um, encouraging people um, to think a little bit more about evaluation. And as I said, it's been an opportunity to critique and to make suggestions about how reports um, can be improved. So I think all of those are, are important aspects, and I want to both express my appreciation for what ANU has done on that front, but also really express my hope that this can continue to be built on and sustained, because I think it's a, it's a somewhat unique. I haven't been able to find any other examples of where this sort of support has been given to evaluation in other, in other areas. Um, I, I would be dishonest if I didn't at least suggest some of the issues that I think still remain. Uh, these are issues that we spend time on, so it's not going to surprise anyone um, on the DFAT side. And, and there are really three. Um, one is, um, if you look at most of the evaluations, um, somewhere it says they're qualitative evaluations. And the, the explanations are many. But uh, you know, I'm, I worked at the World Bank. I was, a, I was supposed to be an economist in the World Bank. And I just think you've got to do more work on the quantitative side to produce you know, credible evaluations. There are some evaluations done a good job on that. Some work was done on roads in Indonesia, which I think was excellent work on evaluation and putting in place rates of return. But this is an issue that we've raised often in the IEC meetings. In yesterday's meeting, we had a discussion of one case where we think it's coming to fruition in terms of an evaluation of teacher training where there is going to be an attempt to produce some real data so that judgments can be made about the impact of teacher training um, on the performance of students. And I just make the general observation that I think this is an issue that has to be continuously, continuously pressed. Related to that is the issue of data. And I have to say, um, here I, I contrast all the time in discussing data, macro data and sectoral data. Uh, the colleagues across the street from where I worked in Washington, the IMF, have worked for now for over 75 years on improving the quality of macro data. They do it in every country. They acknowledge their countries with stronger and weaker data, but they've retained that responsibility, and so you have systematic and consistent macro data with weaknesses, but it's there. When you go over to the non-financial, non-macro side, the data situation globally is a mess, and it's a mess particularly in low-income countries. So when you look at data sets, and as I said, I worked in Africa, you look in Africa, you look in the Pacific, you know, what you see are blank spaces, and what you see are, you know, spaces with footnotes which says, you know, latest data 2013. And you know, I think data is really important for policy work to make judgments about the impacts of policy, how things have changed. And I think you know, the data issues and, and getting more data on the table is important. And this is not only an evaluation issue. I think it's a broader issue with respect 
to analysis and how analysis is done, and I'll, I'll come back to that. My third issue is, if there's an area I'm a bit disappointed, we haven't done as many country studies as I think you know, should be done by, by, uh, by the ODE. Um, country studies really represent and can give signals about a different unit account than a project study, and it's an important unit account because I think once you draw lessons more broadly from project experience, it can both help understanding where problems and issues are, and it can provide an environment for discussions with not just the counterparts at the sector level, but also the important counterparts at ministries of finance in prime minister's office to try to bring about broader reform in countries. So these are three areas we've talked about a lot. I think I can point examples of where there's been progress, but I think these are still a work in progress, which certainly I, I, I expect IEC to continue to focus on in the future. And I'm sure with Wendy here, that's going to happen. Um, a couple of issues, uh, I, I said I'd talk a couple of issues about broader concerns about, not concerns, but issues that I see about DFAT and about the aid program. And it's, it's a fairly modest list because I don't consider myself an expert on DFAT or Australian aid. But I thought there are a couple of things I wanted to comment on. The first one is the level of aid. And that's been an interesting issue during my tenure where I think I have sympathy with some of the criticisms about, um, about the declines. But I, I have to make one positive observation before I come back to some of the concerns that have emerged as a result. The positive observation is just looking at it as a budget issue and how the budget issue was handled. I'm quite impressed with the way the cuts were handled. If you look at the first round of cuts, those were largely handled by a, a sort of consolidation and a focus on regional issues, a focus on Asia uh, and, and Pacific uh, as well. And I thought that was a sensible way as a, as a former budget person in the bank. I thought that was a sensible way to deal with that. The second cut was handled in a way that I was actually impressed with. Because as, as it was being discussed, the one question I had is, does Indonesia get hit? Because Indonesia's had a long and important relationship with Australia. It's an important economy in the region. But also, Indonesia has gotten more prosperous and probably is less dependent on aid. So do you go down the road of simply endorsing past history you know, or do you reflect the recent developments and actually force a cut on Indonesia? And DFAT did force a cut on Indonesia. So I, I saw two cutbacks, which given the decisions, the actual budget allocations, I, I was impressed with. At the same time, I think there's been a cost to this. And there's not the cost that people so often focus on, in, in my view. The cost people focus on are the macro numbers. You know, we're giving some percentage of of aid and it's reduced to another percentage. Um, that is a cost, certainly. I don't, I don't disagree with that. But you know, I'm of the school that says development comes not just through money, but also through policy change. And so money alone doesn't impress me that much. But at the same time, I think there have been real costs. And I just want to underline, from my experience, a couple of them. You know, The removal, I, I feel personally, the removal from Africa was a cost. But I have a more subtle point, I think more important to that. In my experience, um, the governments didn't always like it, but I can point a hell of a lot of experiences where African challenges and Pacific challenges look alike. 
And I think cutting off that experience has been done at, at some cost. Uh, for two reasons. One, because you've got more countries and they're bigger in Africa, and so you have a broader range of experiences which come to the table. But also because I've just seen things that have happened in Africa that haven't happened yet in the Pacific, and vice versa. But one of the things that I've seen in Africa, everybody in the Pacific is talking about the private sector and the bigger role of the private sector. But one of the things that's happened in Africa that hasn't happened in the Pacific is there's a lot of private investment going into self-standing solar programs in rural areas, which are totally self-standing, self-financing. And I've looked, I've done some work in the last six months in the Pacific, and nobody's doing that. And there's still major challenges of delivering electricity in rural areas in the Pacific. And if the choice is between doing that through governments, which already have financial constraints, or being able to bring in a private sector to do it, I think it's something that is actually important advice for the region. So that's one thing that I feel. The other is that you saw a significant reduction in Australian participation in global programs and global interventions. The one I know the most about is Australia expected to become a major donor in the global education front, and that essentially got precluded by the cuts. A final comment is a more general one, that for a while Australia was getting a lot of attention and interest from the outside, and there were a lot of visits, and you know maybe, maybe sometimes for the wrong reason, maybe people were coming to see if they could tap into some of the additional funds. But the point is, I saw much more activity of people coming in from the outside, including, said with a little embarrassment from the World Bank. But the point is, being a place where there's noise and there's interest and there's enthusiasm and there's little resources is not a bad place to be for working on development. So I think in, in all three of these areas, I think there have been costs. And again, it's not so much about the aggregate cuts, it's just about the messages and what had to be dealt with as a consequence. My final comment, my final broad comment, is about economics. Um, you know, I come from an institution that's well known to be dominated by economics, but I have to say I am still consistently taken aback by the limited economic skills in the Australian aid system. Um, and it's important for the programs you're working on. I mean, growth in the Pacific is the issue. If you can get growth, I'm not one that's going to argue every country is going to be sustainable. But I think the right challenge is, are governments working to do what they can do to improve their environment, their policies, and their positions? And, you know, that, that challenge is a real one. And I think you need economists to work both on the growth issue, but more generally on policy issues. Economists have a useful role to play. Um, I'm saying this in spite of the fact that I think economists in my, in, in my home country where I live are embarrassing themselves constantly with poor analysis and poor policy recommendations. But I hope we can meet higher standards than that in the development field. And I do feel, I mean, I've met with every uh, chief economist since I started working on, on the Pacific in 2008, and everybody agrees we need more economists, but it hasn't, it hasn't happened. Um, I also think the economists are a vital part of getting some of this work done on, uh, on, non, on financial issues and on, uh, on, on quantitative work to support the work on projects, that economists play, a, play an important role in that.
So I, I, you know, it's a message that I think everybody gets tired of me talking about. I always say, where are the economists? Um, I think there has been an effort, certainly under the, under the work program of, of ODE, to ensure that when there's a case for economists, um, that they are, they are an inter integral part of the team. But I just think it's more general that this is a, sh a shortage in the system. I have about six comments on the Pacific challenge to conclude. As I said, this is an area that I've, I've been spending some time. Um, when I went to work in East Asia, I didn't think the bank was taking the Pacific very seriously. And so in that job, I think I can say with a straight face that I certainly encouraged uh, more work there and more attention there. And I'll, I'll come to that because a lot more has happened since I was there than when I was there. So I want to be honest about that. But as I've emphasized, I think the growth issue is key. Getting growth up in the Pacific is key. Um, the slow growths of the past um, are not going to provide for the types and the levels of uh, quality of life that people want to achieve. As related to this, I think the private sector challenge is key. And here again, I, I, face, I feel a very strong similarity between what I see in the Pacific and what I saw in Africa. Every government now is sensible enough to say to donors, ah, oh, yes, the private sector is important. Yes, we're focusing on the private sector. And so what I do these days is actually, I, I, I don't always push uh, bank or IFC work, but I always go look at the doing business numbers. And you know, a place like when they began in, 2007, 2008, a little over 10 years ago, um, Fiji was actually a pretty good performer. It was in the top 30. Today it's around 100. When you look at all the other countries in the region, just like the countries in Africa, they all fall in 100 plus or around 100. And what that shows, I think, are two things. One is the absolute performance isn't very good. But I think more important, it, it's a message about relative performance and what's been done. Because, you know, the, the doing business stuff is not magic and it, it has to be always handled with some judgment and perspective. But what it does show is some countries move up and other countries move down. So you see relative performance where I think it's a fairly reliable guide. And, uh, you know, a country in Africa, Rwanda, that was, you know, in the high, mid, mid hundreds you know, is now in the top 30 because they've really worked hard on improving policies for the private sector and it's showing up on the growth side. So again, that linkage. Um, my third point is to come back to the use of the, the, the MDBs, and particularly the Asian Bank and the World Bank. And I have to compliment the government of Australia here. Um, I think they've done a really good job of waking up the MDBs with respect to the Pacific and getting them involved. Over the last five years, ADB support, and ADB had a more traditional relationship, but ADB has doubled its support. The World Bank has tripled its support from a lower base than ADB. And so you, for the first time, you really have credible engagement in the region by the, the two major MDBs. And so I'm hopeful that they can certainly play a role. They now have big office in Sydney, big regional office in, um, in Suva, um, increasingly putting staff in individual countries to work with the countries on reforms. And I think that's an asset, and I give the Australian government enormous credit for this, because certainly during my time I saw the emphasis, but it's obviously been sustained, and if anything, become more effective 
subsequent to my time. So I think it's an important aspect because one of the things that, that I see is, it's hard, it's hard to see from the region, but I see as a comparative basis, is when I was country director in Tanzania or Uganda, I had 30 donors out there, all of whom had money. And you work in the Pacific and it's four or five donors. And of course you face the, sometimes the challenge, sometimes the asset of always being the biggest person in the room. So I think by gauging the MDBs, it helps, both because they bring you know, experience from outside, um, but also because they're bringing funds. One of the things the World Bank has just done is made Fiji eligible for IDA for the first time. And I think that's gonna help increase the program um, that the bank can do, do in Fiji. Uh, fourth point, uh, capacity building. Um, you know, certainly the center's doing a lot of this with respect some of the neighboring countries, I'm, I'm a big fan of that. But I think, I think more generally, um, and I feel the same way about Africa, you know, an enormous push was made at independence in these countries. And that generation is starting to leave. And these are some of the senior good people in these countries. And for a variety of reasons, um, I think there are challenges with the next generation that haven't been very effectively addressed by the international community. So I'm a big believer in trying to think through this issue. You know, there's always frustration with people saying, ah, we've done all of these scholarships. Um, the two observations I always make is one, that you know, you've gotta be more selective in identifying people. And two, I, I think the effort is too broad. I, I think you've gotta make a decision to focus on some key skills and make sure those skills are properly supported. And this gets people upset when I start discussing which areas, because I always begin with economists, of course. But the point is that I, I think as I look at donor programs generally, they've treated low-income countries in a way too often that you were trying to replicate capacity that existed in countries of much higher levels of income. And that dispersion has resulted in not so consistent capacity in areas where you really do need capacity and high level capacity to deal effectively in today's world. So I'm, as I said, I think capacity is still an issue. I have to highlight um, the work being done here on labor mobility. I think it's really important in the context of the global climate change and some of the other issues. Um, the bank had done some early work on this largely with New Zealand and I think that it's been picked up particularly here is very important. Obviously, climate change is a critical issue in the region. Um, I was hopeful that new instruments were gonna bring a lot of new resources. I was never one that believed these numbers of 100 billion a year. Those were completely fabricated numbers, basically counting anything anybody did on anything as support for climate change. I've been a little disappointed that the institutions haven't picked up as quickly as one would have hoped but there clearly is additional resources. And what I find interesting is, you know, on the ADB and World Bank side, their view, which I think is, uh, which I think is the right view, is that if the institutional problems continued, they're prepared to scale up and use more of their resources on this because it's such a critical issue, um, just a critical issue for the region. And finally, as I said, um, you know, I, I think this, this African story and the interactions and strengthening those could make you know, some important, some important contributions on both sides. You know, one of the strange things I found, you know, coming from Africa, you think of Africa as aid dependent. 
Um, and when I joined the East Asia region in the bank, they produced all these briefing books, none of which I look at. But very shortly after I joined, Bob Zellick, the president of the bank, was coming to Australia. He was coming to an APEC meeting. He had been involved in the formation of APEC, so had had this nostalgia. So I accompanied him, and then you know, you're on the plane, it's a long ride, so you read the briefing book. And I remember the exact number, which I thought had to be a mistake, that the average per capita assistance to the Pacific was $315. You know, I was a hero in East Africa if I raised $50 per capita. I mean, I was a hero. And so that was what, you know, made this impression on me very clearly that, you know, it is an aid-dependent region and there are some linkages that can be exploited. I'll conclude by making a couple of points. First of all, I want to thank Wendy and Stephen, who are my counterparts. Um, Stephen, for the past four years, Wendy, from beginning. We've had a good relationship. Every once in a while, we argue, but we never fought. And we've always managed to give consistent messages. And I think their part in that has been key. And finally, I want to thank OED. There are a lot of OED. I did it. This is an inside joke. For my first four years in, uh, in IEC, I, I kept talking about OED instead of ODD. ODE. OED was the Operations Evaluations Department in the World Bank. So I couldn't handle it. But I, I've been much better at that. Now I've screwed up. I apologize in my last public statement. But I want to thank you know the work that's been going on. And we've really had probably two or three generations now of staff in ODE. And I think the quality has been sustained and built. I think the work, and they, as I said, they do all the work with respect to the evaluations. We certainly are in a privileged position of being able to comment and observe. But I, I, you know, I, think, I think Australia can be thankful that it has a very good group of people working on um, evaluation within the development side. And that, that group is given appropriate support within DFAT. So I, I've enjoyed my time. And I guess I'm available for questions and comments. have to draw it to a close there. Um, I do just want to say a few quick thank yous. Um, I want to thank our colleagues at the Office of Development Effectiveness for partnering, partnering with us again on this event. Um, it's a great um, opportunity for us to, to bring Jim and have his um, you know, take on Australian aid. Um, I would also just flag that we had a blog up this week by Rob Christie from ODE um, on performance culture and Australian aid. So if you haven't read that and would like a DFAT take, unfortunately we couldn't quite get today, um, do check out the blog at devpolicy.org. And we'll definitely be host hosting more events together with ODE um, once we're past pesky caretaker period. <laughs> but most of all, I would like to thank Jim, who, um, as Stephen noted, has come to the centre many, many times over the years. I've been at the centre six years, so you've probably been coming a little bit more than than me, but um, you're definitely one of the visitors that we really look forward to welcoming on, you know, once or twice a year and seeing you and, and hearing your perspectives. So please do join me in thanking Jim and wishing him the best on his next endeavours. You have been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Centre. For more information on our work, visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea, the Pacific and global development policy, visit our blog at devpolicy.org. At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter to get all the latest updates, or you can connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening.